This is the day that the Lord hath made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Can you believe we are a couple of weeks from Christmas? It's just crazy how quickly this time has flown. Uh, so it's so good having you here. Come on in, have a seat. This is a uh, time of the year where we talk about peace on earth and, and goodwill towards men and hope. And the reality is, is that so many people today are struggling with a lack of hope, a lack of peace, a lack of joy. And so we come together here today to remember who came, our Savior. He came to live, he came to reign, he came to die, he came to rise again so that we can have hope. So I want to read the psalm for you and then I just want to pray over a couple of requests. Uh, just as a reminder as well, uh, if you didn't get a chance to grab it, grab one of those weekly announcement sheets. They're out front. On the back are some prayer requests, and on the front are some of the announcements that are here. Um, our major announcement I'll give you is the Christmas Eve service is uh, the 24th on Friday, the 24th at uh, 5 p.m. Friday, the 24th at 5 p.m. Let me read this psalm for you. Psalm 61, it says this. Hear my cry, O God. Listen to my prayer. From the ends of the earth I call to you. When my heart is faint, lead me to the rock that is higher than I. For you have been my refuge, a strong tower against my enemies. Let me dwell in your tents forever. Let me take refuge under the shelter of your wings. For you, O God, have heard my vows. You have given me the heritage of those who fear your name. Prolong the life of the king. May his years endure to all generations. May he be enthroned forever before God. Appoint steadfast love and faithfulness to watch over him. So I will sing praises to your name as I perform my vows day after day, would you pray with me? Oh Lord, we said peace on earth and we said goodwill towards men and that's what Jesus did and that's what he came to provide for us. But Lord, we see a, such a lack of peace, such a, such a lack of joy in people's lives and, and people live their lives so constantly in hopelessness and despair. Father, even as the psalmist was writing here in Psalm 61, he's crying out to you and he's saying, Lord, hear my prayers. And he feels like he's at the ends of the earth, so distant from you. He feels so discouraged. He feels like he's in danger. And Father, that's the way so many of us are feeling today. But what is he doing? He says, lead me to the rock that is higher than I. Lord, I pray that you would lead us to that rock, your son. Lead us to the gospel. And I pray that you would remind us that you're a refuge, you're a shelter, you're a fortress, you're ever-present help. And when David was able to sing that and say that and pray out to you, then what he did was he says, I'm going to praise you. I pray that you would help us to do that this morning. Lord, for the many requests here, probably too many to go through this morning. Father, you know each of these requests. You know each of the struggles. You know each of the trials that are here. Lord, I pray for them. Lord, I pray for Sue Hacker. I pray for her healing right now, Father, as she's going through some trials. Thank you for her work here in our church, Father. Pray that you give healing to her. I pray, I pray for Dave Mercer as he goes to um, the doctors tomorrow, a cardiologist appointment, Father. I pray for wisdom for that. 
Father, we continue to pray for the Alpal family, Father, as they are with this incredible loss in their family, Lord. I thank you that they were able to catch the person, but now there's healing, and I pray for uh, the the nephew that is in uh, the hospital right now, Father. I pray that he would be restored. I pray continually for the Kelly family, Lord. Lord, I pray for clarity for Diana and, Father, next treatment options. I pray for Victor, Father, for healing of those fingers that were damaged in that injury. Uh, Lord, I pray that you would remind us that you were near us. Pray for Pastor Doug, Father, with his knee. Father, thank you for his ministry with us and his willingness to be here, even on the pain on the leg that he was having. Lord, give wisdom to his doctors. And today, Father... I pray that you would help us to praise your son and worship him by your spirit and for your glory. In Jesus' matchless, holy, and powerful name we pray. Amen, amen. Good morning, everyone. Would you stay with us? Angels we have heard on high. Angels we have heard on high, sweetly singing all the place. And the mountains in reply, echoing the joyous strains. Shepherds. Shepherds, why this jubilee? Why your joyous strings prolong? What the gladsome tidings be, which inspire your heavenly song? Bethlehem. Of angels 
angels praise Mary Joseph mind your reign while our hearts in love we raise Gloria in excelsis Deo children children weep no more hope is on the horizon weary world behold your promised Messiah angels let your song begins here comes heaven Christ is born in Bethlehem here comes heaven sinner wait no more love is broken Yeah. 
breaks the dawn of salvation. Darkness reigns no more, for Jesus is greater. He is greater. Thank you. 
simply that glory to God glory in the highest thank you for making a way when there simply was no way and coming in the humblest way possible Lord 
Every Christmas we are amazed at that story. That this amazing host of heaven, these angels, important beings, show up and speak to the lowest and the weakest shepherds in the field. Mary and Joseph, these are nobodies. But of course to us, they're somebody. And that's because of what you've done, not because of who they are. We read that story, Lord, and we feel that same way. I'm a nobody. But apart from Christ, I'm a nobody. But because of Christ, I'm a somebody. I matter. I have a purpose. There's an ultimate goal, an ultimate end for my life, and it doesn't end. It continues with you forever and ever. Thank you for putting your plan in place in a very humble way. It teaches us as Christians to approach all things humbly. Not to come boasting of who we are, but in boasting who you are. God, now as we hear your word from Pastor Tim, may he boast in you, we know he will, and may we leave this place boasting in you as well. We thank you for this time of worship, and we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. Amen. Carl, thank you for uh, helping us to enjoy and celebrate the purpose of the season that is before us this Christmas season. I uh, do want to give you one reminder by way of announcement. If you are able to help out with our children's ministry, that's namely with the uh, preschool nursery program, we want to encourage you, uh, go to the sheet that's on the table out front and make sure you get signed up to help out with that. We really are in need of people to help with that. Uh, sometimes that burden gets carried by a few when it should be carried by many. So just a reminder and a push uh, to encourage you to sign up for that if you have not done that yet. So it is indeed uh, the beginning of the Christmas season for us as a church family in the sense that today we begin three sermons reflecting on the announcement, the coming and birth of our Savior Jesus Christ. Uh, a few weeks ago, my wife got an excited text from her friend announcing that the Hallmark Channel was going to launch their... Christmas season with perpetual and non-stop movies to thrill your heart. Now, I am not against the Hallmark Channel, and I am not a fan. Uh, my complaint to my wife, who enjoys having it on in the background because it sets the scene in it, you know, you know the story. Um, my, my response is, honey, it's just not, it's not reality. Nobody's life is like that. It's too ideal. And it's not what life is really like. In contrast to that are the accounts of the true Christmas story. The coming of Christ in flesh. Those accounts are not sanitized. They're not neat and clean. They're not ideal. The accounts, the accounts instead are messy, real, and raw. They reflect the struggles of those involved. Their struggles are real, their doubts are strong, their fears are valid. And when I read their stories, I can see my own experience and story in their words and in their struggles. And so this is what I'm attracted to in this season. Uh, the difference that Christ can make in broken and hurting lives. The text that is before us today, and the key to many of the accounts of the birth of Christ in Matthew and Luke, 
is that their accounts that tell us how God came in flesh, how God became one of us without taking on our sin. And the answer to how that happened is called the virgin birth. The text that we'll look at today puts a large emphasis on that theme. But it is true when you read through the accounts of the birth of Christ that there is a rather substantial emphasis that is placed on the players in the scenes. Meaning there is rather extensive biographical information that is given to us in these historical narratives that give us insight into what was happening in the lives, in the hearts, and in the minds of the people that participate in the coming of Christ, the Son of God. So in the midst of this story that is heavy with theology, the virgin birth is one of those deeper, more mysterious and substantial truths that is crucial to our understanding of biblical Christianity and of the gospel itself. But in the middle of that heavy theology, there is also this prospect of and pronouncement of a practical theology, meaning theology that affects my daily life. So flowing out of that theology of the virgin birth, which I would call very high and exalted theology, difficult to understand, crucial to my salvation and to my forgiveness that the sinless son of God came and remained sinless in his coming and went to Calvary's cross to stand in my place to bear the consequences of my sin. That is high theology. That theology and the truth of my relationship with God through the work of the beautiful sinless son of God leads to a practical theology in my life. It leads to a lifestyle in our lives that is informed by an understanding of that high theology that in a significant way begins to impact my daily experience. And so I want us to work through this text from Luke chapter 1. And I want you to turn there, Luke chapter 1. And we're going to begin our reading this morning in verse 26. Luke chapter 1 and verse 26. What Luke chapter 1 covers is the announcement of the birth of John the Baptist, the proclaimer of the Messiah. And then secondly, it talks about the announcement of the birth of Jesus Christ, the son of Mary. Okay, so those two stories run parallel, if you will. They, they have very similar characteristics if you read through them, okay? One is about the one who will pronounce the coming of Christ. One is about the coming of Christ via Mary, okay? So the, if you read through the first part of the chapter, you find the story of Zacharias. He's a, he's a priest. He's in the temple. God comes and through an angelic messenger named Gabriel tells him that his, he's going to have a son. A miraculous birth at that because his wife has been barren. She's well advanced in years. Her being pregnant is very unlikely. Zacharias laughs at the announcement. He rebuts the announcement and finally surrenders to God. Okay, Mary, on the other hand, uh, has a visit from Gabriel as well. The text is going to start by telling us that it's six months later. So Elizabeth, Zachariah's wife, is six months along. She is a cousin to Mary, okay? And so this, this, this account, as it begins, it says, in the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy. So that's Zachariah's wife. She is the mother of John the Baptist. 
six months older in the physical realm than Jesus Christ. Okay, so that kind of brings us into the setting of the story. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. Right, don't miss that statement. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, greetings. You are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the son of the most high. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. How will this be, Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin? The angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, here's your connection, even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age, and she who was called unable to conceive or barren is in her sixth month. For no word from God can ever fail. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May your will, word to me be fulfilled. Then the angel left her. We'll pick up on verse 39 in just a little bit. So this is the account. It's the account that tells us how God came in flesh. How, how he became one of us without taking on our sin. And the text begins in a little town called Nazareth. Nazareth was a town that was socially below average. Uh, it was a place where unknown people lived in an unknown town. And the assumption would surely be this, if God is going to act, it is unlikely that he would choose someone from Nazareth. People in Nazareth were not waiting in expectation of someone or something noteworthy. In fact, as you read through the gospels, you will find that the scuttlebutt amongst people when they hear about Jesus of Nazareth, the common response is this. Can anything good come from Nazareth? Meaning no one is living in Nazareth waiting for God to come and find them and to give them a high and exalted task. So this visit from the angel to this town called Nazareth is a surprising visit. Secondly, this text tells us not only the setting of the account, but also the marital status of the primary participant. It says in verse 27, Gabriel came to, a, to Galilee, a town, a, a Nazareth, a town of Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph. Now, it's interesting. She is pledged to be married. That word, the, some of the translations you have may use the word, she was betrothed to Joseph. 
The idea is similar to engagement, but stronger, could only be broken by divorce, and typically indicated that there was no physical consummation of the relationship. That is, they, that Mary and Joseph were living in accordance with the Jewish teaching in relationship to sexual purity prior to marriage. And for that reason, she is identified very clearly in the text as a virgin pledged to be married. So she's of marital age in the culture, and she is a virgin. The other thing that's real interesting in terms of the marital status, the one that she's going to be married to, his name is Joseph, and the text gives you that little aside. Joseph is a descendant of David. All right, that would point to Joseph's royal pedigree. He's in the line of or of the tribe of David, the tribe of Benjamin. Okay, so that just, just let that little thought hang there for a moment, and we'll come back to the importance of that. Verse 28 tells us the angelic greeting. Okay, it says, the angel went to her and said, greetings. And, and this presumably is Mary's going through her normal day. We don't know where she is. My guess is that no one else is present. She's in an isolated location. And Gabriel the angel of God that is only, I think, the other time in the Old Testament mentioned is in the book of Daniel. He's one of the ones that comes, serves apparently before God, and makes announcements on God's behalf to people. He went to her and said, greetings, you are highly favored, and the Lord is with you. And I want you to just think about these statements. My, my guess is that for Mary, this is not her first encounter with truth about God. It, it seems from what you can see as you read through the text that Mary has a basic understanding of who God is, that, that her life can be characterized as devout. She's a pious individual who has a love for God. So I don't, I don't think is, this is her first introduction to God because she seems to be somewhat literate in the scriptures and have an understanding of what's going on. So the, the announcement to her is what is most interesting. She is called a favored one. So she is not the one that gives grace, as is often taught in the Catholic Church. She is a recipient of divine favor and grace from God himself. And this angelic supernatural visit is meant to indicate her status before God. Okay, so the idea of the text is that she is a favored one. And usually that idea of being favored or graced, because that's the literal word here, usually means for some God-ordained purpose or calling. It's an enablement from God. That's the idea of the text here. And then it says, the Lord is with you. Now, if, if you're a, 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 an, an astute uh, Jewish person, you would know that God is with everyone because God is present everywhere, but there is a unique sense in which God's presence is being manifested in Mary's life at this time in history. And so this idea of the Lord is with you means that he is present in a special way and it assures her of divine resources and divine protection. Okay, so that's the idea of this. The Lord is with you. He is resourcing you and he is protecting you. He has placed his desire upon you and wants to work in and through your life. So here's the question. How would you respond to that if you were Mary? 
a young teenage girl, presumably best we can tell, has an encounter with a supernatural being who, in, who announces divine intentions for her life. I think Mary's responses are very much like our responses. First, there is perplexity. Then there is this dilemma. And then last, you'll see willing surrender. So let's look at her first response. The first response is not audible. It, 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 it apparently is not a verbal response from Mary, but a response that could be read by the look on her face. Okay, now all you have to do is think of your own personal experience and think of the look on your face in certain circumstances where data is introduced or someone is standing right in front of you. Maybe it's a surprise visit from someone out of town and there is this palpable, readable expression on your face. I wonder what the look on Mary's face was like because she is from a very simple place and she is by all accounts, a very simple person. Not likely that she was someone who was waiting for God to visit and alter and change her life. And so as the text begins in verse 29, it says, Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. And I think Gabriel is obviously looking at her as he comes and manifests himself in her presence. And he can see her response, her reaction, her dismay, her surprise, whatever, whatever emotions are, 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 are illuminating her countenance at that moment, it becomes very, very readable for Gabriel. The text tells us, and, and, and kind of means this, it, it literally means that Mary sought a rational explanation. She wondered, after being troubled, she wondered what kind of greeting this might be. Meaning, what is the outcome or intent of this divine visitation? Because God is not uh, in the business of doing things to just do things. Right? He's not like a genie just saying, hey, look at that and look at that. Okay, God is always acting in accordance with his divine sovereign purpose for our lives. And this visitation by an angelic being who stands in the presence of God causes Mary first to be troubled. There, there's this assumption of some type of, of fear or reverence that comes over her. And she begins to audit the experience. She seeks a rational explanation. That's what the word she wondered what kind of greeting this might be, to what aim, to what intent has God come? I know that it's very common for modern scientifically informed people to think that the people of the first century were rather naive, if not gullible, unintelligent, you understand what I'm saying, right? All right, false. Okay, the people of the first century weren't any less intelligent and enlightened than you and I are. Are there things we know that they didn't know? The answer is yes. But when the angel showed up in front of Mary, Mary didn't say, oh, this is cool. Like acceptable, believable. It, 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 
She needed a rational explanation for what was going on. What is the purpose of this supernatural and divine encounter? In verse 30, it tells you that before she speaks, at least in this text, the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary. Don't be put back on your heels, greatly troubled. You have found favor with God. And you'll notice that there is no rebuke to Mary. Her surprise was acceptable. It was appropriate. The angel said, Mary, do not be afraid. You have found favor or grace with God. And then here's the announcement. You will conceive and give birth to a son and you are to call him by the name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the son of the most high God. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. Now, in my Bible, I circle words and I draw lines, okay? My, what I'm trying to do is to connect the flow of the story. So as I look here in verse 32, God says of the one that Mary will give birth to, God will give him the throne of his father, David. And then when I go up to verse 27, I find that Mary is betrothed or engaged to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David, right? Now, what do I start to say? I start to see a storyline story tying itself together. Mary is pledged to be married to a descendant of King David. And the angel says to Mary, your son will sit on David's throne, which will be a fulfillment of the Davidic promise from 2 Samuel chapter 7, which every literate Jew would have somewhat memorized. This is part of the story they knew and understood, that God was at work in his people. And when this came to Mary, this has to be one of those overwhelmingly powerful messages. The promise they longed to see fulfilled has now come to earth and is aiming to be fulfilled in the life, not of an expected one, not of a high class one, but of an average person like Mary, because that's always how God is working. He said, you will conceive and give birth to a son. And notice what, what he says. And you will give him the name in verse 31. You will conceive, give birth to a son. You are to call him Jesus. The word in Hebrew would be Yeshua or Joshua. In the Greek, it would be Jesus Savior. And, and as you read through this, you find these divine connections. These, the divinity of Christ is revealed here. He will be called the Son of the Most High God. An astonishing message for Mary. Call him Savior, Yeshua, Jehovah, the Lord is salvation. Matthew 1, 21, Joseph is told that his child will be named Jesus for he will save his people from their sin and that his kingdom will never end. So these promises have large reaching and far reaching consequences and outcomes. So first we see the perplexity of Mary. And now we find her first verbal response. Okay, first response, she begins to audit. She seeks a rational explanation. The angel gives her an explanation. It's not that Mary sits back and says, okay, good, I understand that. 
I'm, I'm game, right? It's not her first response. Then the angel gives more detail and data about the amazing scope of these promises. And in verse 34, she unveils her dilemma. Her, why she is struggling with this promise of giving birth to a son. She says in verse 34, how can this be? How can I give birth to a son? Mary asked the angel. Since I am a virgin. And that's the second time in this text that the marital status and the moral status of Mary is emphasized. Okay, she has not, the, the idea I am a virgin simply be, means I have not known a man intimately and sexually. Okay, that's the idea that she puts forth and it is her dilemma. Maybe her response is, okay, this is all very touching, but I have a problem. I have a dilemma in my mind as I am trying to rationally put this together. I don't see how this can be right now. This announcement to her is crazy. I am a virgin. I have not known any man. Now, one of the things I want you to think about is Mary objecting to the plan of God. And that's a question you need to face. As she walks through this difficult path of understanding, is she objecting to the purpose of God? I think the answer is no. I think this is simply an honest question that comes out of rational thinking and she is seeking information as to how this might happen. How could this be rational? I am a virgin, so I can't be with child. Therefore, I can't fulfill this promise that you are making. I think the second thought that might come to her mind is the awkwardness of this situation. How does someone who has not known a man, therefore has not been intimate with Joseph, show up pregnant without that creating incredibly difficult circumstances and questions? Joseph wrestled with that in Matthew chapter 1, didn't he? His question was, how does this look? How will this be perceived? And all of those fears come to fruition or, or, or find their validation in the experience of Jesus because later people would call him a bastard child. They would say, we're not born like you, Jesus. We're not illegitimate in our birth. We come from a valid home, right? And that becomes part of the concern that's present in this text. And she pulls out a calculator. Joseph pulls out his calculator and they try to understand how this promise could be fulfilled in light of the circumstance. In fact, it is true that Joseph seeks to escape the embarrassment of this possibility honorably, right? Joseph said, I'm going to put her away quietly so as not to embarrass and shame her. Man of integrity. It's fascinating to note in this text in contrast to the earlier half of this chapter where Zechariah doubts God and God strikes him unable to speak for the next nine months, okay? And there's a difference between how Zechariah responds to the divine encounter and how Mary responds to the divine encounter. Her doubt does not lead to divine disapproval 
because she is not resisting. What she's doing is trying to understand to the best of her ability so that she can surrender more fully and purposefully to the plan of God. Some doubt in our lives seeks answers. Some seeks control. That is not always a bad thing. And for us to submit questions to God in, in an effort to understand what he is seeking to do in our lives can be deemed as very appropriate. God's response to Mary in this case is very fascinating. Verse 35, the angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. So Mary says, how can this be? How can I have a child? And the answer emerges from this text in such a very beautiful and powerful way. The angel says to her, the Holy Spirit will come on you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Now I want you to look at the divine assurance that God gives to her. And this is the kindness of God providing data that Mary needs. How can this be? And the answer to Mary is this. Mary, the outcome of your being with child is not dependent upon human activity. It's not dependent on the norms of life as we know them in the natural realm. And he automatically points towards God and the work of the Holy Spirit coming on her, the power of the Most High overshadowing her so that the Holy One, that is the moral identity of Jesus, the sinless one, that is to be born to you, will be called the Son of God. So he gives her divine assurance, which is to say, this is a God thing, and your child will be holy. That is completely other than all of humanity. This points to that unique identity of Christ as the sinless Son of God. And he is not just a child, but he is very God himself, which would start a bell to ring in their minds from Isaiah chapter seven and verse 14, which is quoted back in Matthew chapter one, verse 23. It says, look, a virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and you are to call his name Emmanuel, which means God in the midst or God with us, right? And all of a sudden what starts to happen to Mary? Her, her resistance, her doubt, her concerns begin to fade as the evidence that God begins to pour over her melts away the confusion and begins to alter and change her attitude towards this experience. I love what verse 36 does. Verse 36 says to her, and your cousin Elizabeth, now watch how this says this, your cousin Elizabeth, even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age. She who was called barren, unable to conceive, is in her sixth month. And I kind of imagine Gabriel saying to her, so what do you think of that? Right? So you think it can't happen to you. I have a promise for you. There's divine assurance. This is a work of God. This is what we need in our lives, isn't it? If I'm going to do something for God, if my life is going to make a difference, God must overcome my weakness to do what he intends. It's exactly what God says to Mary through Gabriel. Gabriel says, Mary, I, I know it's confusing. I was reluctant to come because I knew you would struggle. But what I want you to know from God is that this is his plan for your life and his plan cannot be defeated. 
And this kicker, Elizabeth, your cousin? Yeah, she's carrying the forerunner to the Messiah. His name is John. So we find divine assurance, God's word, Isaiah 7, 14, and the penny drops for Mary. You find tangible assurance, even Elizabeth, who is titled barren, is in her sixth month. And then you find this reminder in verse 37. I think this is central to this text. She's in her sixth month. For no word from God can ever fail. Some of your translations say it this way. For nothing is impossible with God. I think Mary stands before this angel thinking, this is highly improbable. I don't know how this can work. Why? I've stayed pure. How can I be with child? Answer, God. Illustration, Elizabeth. Promise, no word from God. And the idea of the word from God is no purpose or plan of God that he has spoken can ever fail. Or nothing is impossible with God, Mary. Mary, I know you're struggling with what I said, but it's because you're calculating, you're auditing from a merely human perspective. Put on these glasses and you will see things totally differently. God has designed to work in and through your life. And one of the encouragements that I think we derive from this text is for most of us, as believers, I think most of us will confess that we feel that we have weak faith. Is that true? You ever feel like, man, I just, I wish I had, I wish I had a greater capacity, a stronger capacity to trust God and see him work in ways that I never believed I would see, right? And for Mary, I think what's happening here is she's walking through a process. She is literate in an Old Testament teaching. She has an encounter with an angel who's mentioned in the book of Daniel at a very crucial point. She knows that she's married to Joseph, who is a descendant of David, and that now a promise from Isaiah 7:14 has been laid in front of her. And she has been told that that promise will be fulfilled miraculously through her life. That God's saving plan, by God coming in the midst what happened through this young lady from a no-name town, from a no-name family, but chosen by God. You know what I say? I say, God, increase my faith. Give me the, the capacity to believe that no word, no purpose, no plan of God can ever fail to reach its conclusion and purpose. It's a beautiful thought. An easy verse for you to memorize, Okay. Nothing is impossible with God. So she's walking through this process of faith, but then it comes to this conclusion in verse 38. And this is her willing surrender. All of the resistance is just melting away. As she begins to piece together, not from a rational perspective, but from a supernatural perspective, she begins to see more clearly the plan and design of God. And there is this breaking point that comes in her life. Verse 38 is beautiful. Mary's confession, I am the Lord's servant. 
May your word, your purpose, your plan to me be fulfilled. And then the angel left her. Folks, here's what I want you to understand. Mary walks through this process from perplexity to the dilemma to the surrender. Okay, here's what I want you to know. Mary is not negotiating with God. She's not saying, well, I'm willing to do that if you do this. And if, if you adjust this, then I'm willing to do that. And if you could take away the possibility of me looking unpure, then I'm willing. No. In no way do you find her negotiating with God. Once she understands that it is the plan and purpose of God, she is working out her surrender to what God wants to do through her life. And I think this is really the difference between her and what we see in Zechariah. There is an attempt on Zechariah's part to understand and control. On Mary's part, there is a desire to understand and surrender. And all of this discussion is working out the heart of this woman because I do not believe that verse 38 when she says, behold, the servant of the Lord, I don't believe that is the first time that Mary saw herself as one surrendered to God. I think the text becomes very clear when you read all the gospels that there is a unique character to this woman, a unique understanding of her position before God that is driving and informing her life. So her surrender is first in attitude. I am the Lord's servant. And here's what I would tell you, friends. Once that truth is worked out and settled in your heart, that I am the Lord's servant, the rest of your Christian life becomes easy. Because the thing Tim Hoff struggles with is full surrender. I am surrendered. But if you say, are you fully surrendered? And my answer is going to be, I am striving to be. I struggle. There are certain things that I sense God calling me to, asking me to do that I struggle with. Certain circumstances that I know how I should respond, but I would struggle with responding in that way. And one of the things that we as Christians need to realize is that God does not come into my life to be a consultant or an advisor. He comes to be king. He's not a trainer that I try out. And if I like the outcomes, I surrender a little bit more to him. No, he doesn't come in that way. He comes as king of kings and lord of lords. And the only appropriate response from my heart to him is, Lord, behold your servant. One fully dedicated to your plans and purposes, even when they bring perplexity, even when there is dilemma involved, even when there is the potential of struggle involved, I surrender all to you. Mary's response is beautiful. May your word, may your plan, may your purpose be fulfilled. She goes, after saying, how can it be I'm a virgin? Now she turns and she says, okay. I surrender to your plan and purpose. So the, one of the questions that we need to ask is, what is it that God is challenging my heart about? What step of obedience is right in front of me? that I've thought through and calculated that it may lead to struggle, it may lead to difficulty, it may lead to stress, it may strain a relationship, but I know it's what God wants. The question you need to answer is this, whose servant are you? See, if you're your own servant, if you exist for your own benefit, you're not gonna do what God wants. 
But if you realize that you exist for the glory and honor of God, that you are his bondservant, which for Mary, it literally means I am a household slave of God. Whatever he asks, whatever he requires, my answer is yes, even when there are objections and dilemmas and perplexities. Surrender is not always neat and clean. It often works out over time. For many of us, there is a bit of a process that we're going through in our lives where we're, we're understanding what God wants and we're striving to work through understanding it well enough so that we can take that next step of surrender. For Mary, there's a process here. And for all of us, there is a process, but that process one day must come to a point of decision where I yield to God because I understand that he, have king, he is king of kings and Lord of lords in my life. Well, then real quickly, let's look at the outcomes of her surrender. That's the portion of the text I didn't read to you. Uh, begins in verse 39. Okay, I want you to watch how this unfolds. Verse 39, it says, At that time, Mary got ready and hurried to a town in the hill country of Judea, where she entered Zechariah's home and greeted Elizabeth. It's a fascinating step, isn't it? So God said, hey, even Elizabeth, after she's done dealing with God and, and she sorts out her resistance and she yields to his plan, what is the first thing she does? In, and I kind of get the idea that just in haste, she can't, she's not going there to verify something that she doubts is true. She's going there to meet someone who understands the position that she has been called to. And there is a, I think, a beautiful freedom that emerges in this text. Her surrender brings a sense of relief and she hurries to see Elizabeth. Can't wait to see what God is doing in one who was called barren. So the first thing I think we have when we surrender to God is this, is this sense of relief and this embracing fully and can't wait to see what God is at work doing. And so she rushes there. Verse 44, 40 through 44, surrender brings blessing. Watch, watch what this says. It says, when she, where she entered Zachariah's home and greeted Elizabeth, verse 41. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And in a loud voice, she proclaimed, blessed are you among women. And blessed is the child that you will bear. But why am I so favored that the mother of my Lord should come to me? As soon as the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. Blessed is the one who has believed, and I think that is the essence of surrender, to take God at his word, who has believed that the Lord will fulfill his promises to her. What a beautiful statement. Mary took God at his word and her life was changed. And when Elizabeth experiences the, 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 the presence of Mary, something beautiful in this text happens. It says that the baby at six months inside of her quickens, responds, emotionally to the stimulation of this greeting from Mary. And there's some mystery clearly involved here, but there is also a beauty 
and assurance that, 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 that flows to Mary through this circumstance. There is this bringing of clarity that God is indeed at work and that Elizabeth indeed is pregnant. And now she sees it with her eyes and has this deep assurance from God. Beautiful, beautiful statement. And, and let me just say this as an aside, as we as a nation are in the throes of this discussion about abortion and the termination of life. This text is fascinating. This whole text is fascinating because it says and proclaims truth about what lies within. It gives definition to what is inside of a pregnant woman at a number of levels. Verse 41, it says that what is within Elizabeth is called a baby. That baby is an individual that temporarily resides inside of a mother's womb. The one carrying the the child is already a mom. She doesn't become a mom at birth. She is a mom because she is carrying a child that has independent status, though it is within her. And lastly, that this child inside of Elizabeth and also newly inside of Mary has a God-ordained purpose. Folks, it is tragic that we live in a country that will kill that. Because I think we fail to understand. The real question is this, what is inside Not can I do this or that. First of all, answer the question. What is inside of you? Give that definition first. And then you can answer the question. Should I terminate this? Or kill this? Does that make sense? it, It is so clearly all over this text. A baby, a mom, a divine ordained purpose. And that life and every life, therefore, should be highly valued. Surrender brings blessing and clarity for Mary. Surrender brings delight. Look at verses 46 and following. This is, if you're familiar with the the Latin designation of this, this is called the Magnificat. All right, this is, this is Mary's song of praise. And as you read throughout scripture, whenever God is working in large ways, you will always find that his working is accompanied with songs that celebrate at the highest level what God has done. Okay, so that's why during the Christmas season, we sing songs about the coming of Christ. Because when you take that truth that we speak and you put it to music, it takes it to a new and exalted level. And as Mary encounters Elizabeth and sees that the promises that that were made to her are true, not only in Elizabeth, but also in herself, there is this welling up of a song of praise and worship of God. I want you to notice how this unfolds. Mary says, this is her response, and I think Elizabeth is probably sitting back like, wait, where are you from? My soul glorifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my savior. This idea of soul and spirit are to say my entire 
non-physical being is enraptured with these thoughts. It blesses, it magnifies, it exalts God. Why, Mary? Well, here's why. He has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. He knows my family. He knows where I'm from. I'm a nobody that he chose to be somebody. And there's a song that says, as a result of that, I want to tell everybody about Jesus. And so this, this is, is God's blessing and clarity. This is in response to surrender. This is delight. This is wonder. This is high praise bursting out of a con someone who's conscious of their unworthiness, but knows that they are blessed by God. She says, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For the mighty one has done great things for me. And holy is his name. Folks, one of the things that will always accompany a true understanding of the gospel and of the favor is God. Something that will always accompany it is this sense of feeling undeserving. Is this sense of overwhelming joy and surprise and amazement. That God, the creator of the universe, has designed to work in and through my life to do great things. May we stand in expectation of what God can do for us. And that's what Mary gives praise for. She says, I'm amazed at the great things that he has done for me. That's shock. And, and, and if you've come to trust Christ, I pray that you've had that experience or even after coming to faith in Christ, where you've gained clarity on your understanding of the gospel, and it is changing and reshaping your life, and you begin to grasp at a deeper level the amazing things that God has done for you. At the end of the day, in verses 50 to 54, she, she really is declaring this simple truth, that God is faithful, and she is encouraging us to trust him. Verse 55 is a fascinating statement because it touches on a beautiful promise. It says he has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever. Because this coming of the Messiah to Mary is a blessing that affects the entire world that we know. You know what God said to Abraham in the Old Testament? He said, Abraham, Genesis 12, he said, Abraham, in you all families of the earth will be blessed. And now that blessing comes to be exposed in a very pointed situation in Mary's womb is the savior of the world. And that becomes really the, the beautiful center point of this account. Look at Mary. No more than 15 years old. Socially at the bottom of the ladder. Her surrender took her even lower. Yet she did so willingly. A life of struggles. Her son rejected, beating, dying too young, yet because one of the, and yet she becomes one of the most beloved New Testament characters. And I would argue that in the world we live in, most people would know and associate the name Mary with the birth of Christ. Because she surrendered after she struggled 
and yet has such a large impact. And so the text repeatedly tells us that Mary is blessed by God. This morning, for us as a church, I would argue that the greatest reason for our surrender is not what we can do for Jesus. Our greatest reason for surrender is an understanding of what he himself has done for us. You know, in her life, Mary said, be it unto me according to your word. Mary made her surrender before she understood all that Christ would do for her. She accepted God's will, knowing that it might cost her dearly. However, Jesus surrendered to his father's will, knowing that it would cost him everything. In the garden, he said, Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. He didn't want the suffering, but in surrender to his father's will, he said, in essence, be it unto me according to your word. Or, not my will, but yours be done. He knew that his surrender in the Garden of Gethsemane would culminate in the cross and plunge him into the darkness of my sin and yours. But out of his surrender would come the most glorious message of gospel and saving. This morning, as we conclude our time in God's word, we are preparing ourselves for the Lord's table. And as we do that this morning, I want to encourage you, as we prepare to partake of these elements, I, I want to encourage you to remember what Christ has done for you. Uh, the Gospels tell us that when we partake of these elements, we are proclaiming Christ's death. We are making a declaration about our faith in what Christ has done for us and how it has changed our lives. And so this morning, as you partake, I pray that we will do it out of a surrendered heart, out of a heart that is yielded to the clear purposes and plans of God in our life, out of a heart that doesn't want to do something for God first, but that first wants to receive something from God out of gratitude. Okay, so that as we pass the elements out this morning, if you have trusted in Christ, if you know him as your Savior and Lord, the purpose of these elements is to give us an opportunity to proclaim the Lord's death, to do what Mary did, to re rejoice in God, my Savior, out of a heart that is fully surrendered. As the elements are passed out, we encourage you to do this, to examine your heart and then eat of that bread and drink of that cup. The purpose of that examination is to say, God, am I living a life of full surrender? Am I fully yielded to your plans and your purposes? And if you're not, here's what I would encourage you to do. Just go to God as we send the elements around and just say to God, God, I, here's, the, here's the sin in my life that I am conscious of and aware of. And I want you by the blood of Christ to cleanse me and to forgive me. And then I can eat of that bread and drink of that cup, proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes. Would you pray with me? Father, this morning as we look at Mary's life, uh, we can resonate with the struggles that she faced. We, I am sure, can empathize with the struggle with the cost of surrender.
But Lord, as we come to your table this morning, we are looking back and we have a very different perspective than Mary had. We look back at a Savior who came and who lived a perfect life and died in our place so that we could be forgiven. And so, Lord, from that greater perspective that we as believers have, I pray that we will look back and this morning express to you gratitude for the fact that you came in flesh, lived a perfect life, stood on Calvary's cross to bear the consequence of our sin so that we could be forgiven and set free. Lord, this morning, melt our resistance through the proclamation of the cross of Christ. May it destroy anything in me that wants to negotiate with you. And may it cause me to willingly surrender to your call on my life. And God, I pray that that will be true for everyone here this morning. If there's someone here, Lord, that has never trusted in Jesus, Father, my simple prayer would be that they, as the elements are passed out, may come to a realization that what this proclaims is not true for me. And may they this morning cry out to you and say, God, save me, forgive me, cleanse me by the blood of Christ, and be my master and Lord of my life. Father, exalt yourself in this observance of communion, I pray. In Jesus' name, and all God's people said, amen.
beloved. Uh, the Lord Jesus Christ came here and lived a life that we could never live. He died a death in our place, and he rose victoriously um, from the grave. And we celebrate him today. You have two cups. There's one cup with a morsel in it, bread. Would you take that in your hands? Jesus, we thank you so much for your death, your resurrection, your ascension. Thank you for the new covenant that you've given us. Thank you that we're accepted by God and will never be forsaken by him. As we take this bread, Lord, remind us that you are the true heavenly bread that strengthens our life. Take and eat. same night he gave us a cup a cup symbolizing his blood of the new covenant father remind us that we take this cup on we stand under your son's cross we stand in his blood we are free because of him lord jesus thank you for the life that you lived thank you for the blood that you shed for us thank you for the fact that we have hope and freedom and forgiveness in a family because of you Take and drink. Father, I pray that we would be blessed and that we would be a blessing to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Surrender 
Jesus. All to Jesus I surrender. Lord, I give myself to Thee. Lord, this morning is what we are offering. We surrender to you, God. Our plans, our future. May we, like Mary, look at what you have for us and say, I'm your willing servant. I got questions, but I'm your servant. I trust you, Lord. And we come to you with that faith that says, ultimately, whatever it is, God, you have for us, may we trust you. We trust you, Lord. You're good. We thank you for this time of worship, this time of hearing your word. We ask now as we go into our weeks, may we surrender to what you have for us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Have a nice week.